Over the past few months, Latin American nations, one after another, have been engulfed by social unrest. You've heard about them on this podcast already. Chile, Ecuador, Peru, Bolivia. But in previous episodes, we explored what is driving Latin Americans to the streets. This time around, we are focusing on another aspect of these crises. They show how democracy remains fragile in the region, which has brought back to the forefront an old and perhaps forgotten element. The prominence of the armed forces as major power brokers in Latin America. In Chile, Peru or Ecuador, presidents relied on the support of military fatigues to hold their ground. El general Iturriaga, que está a cargo de este estado de emergencia. In Bolivia, Evo Morales was forced to resign once the barracks stopped supporting him. The same phenomenon can be seen in Venezuela, where the increasingly dictatorial Nicolás Maduro manages to cling on to his office despite overseeing the most dramatic socio-economic collapse in the Western world. What is keeping him in the presidency? You guessed it. The support from military leaders. And in Brazil... The president's entourage is making references to the time when the government could shut down Congress and take away people's political rights, and not in a subtle way. Não se assustem se alguém então pediu as cinco. Já não aconteceu uma vez. But using the army as a legitimizing force brings back old demons from Latin America's not so distant past, when most of the region was ruled by military dictatorships. And this puts civilian leaders in an immensely fragile position. This week we try to answer a crucial question. Are generals still Latin America's ultimate power brokers? My name is Gustavo Ribeiro. I'm the editor-in-chief of the Brazilian Report. This is Explaining Brazil. The armed forces have always been key political actors in Latin America. Take the Brazilian case. The republic only came to be after the army joined the movement to depose the emperor in 1889. It would stage, or help to stage, many coups in the following decades, even ruling Brazil for 21 years between 1964 and 1985. Now, we have a former army captain in the presidency, who surrounded himself with multiple former officers. I often read that the military would be back in politics. Christoph Herrig is a postdoctoral researcher at the University of the German Armed Forces in Hamburg. I don't quite agree. I think they have never really been gone away from politics. So uh, in most countries where you had military regimes, uh, they managed to maintain a certain political influence at least to an extent where they were able to protect their own institutional interests. I would argue that in recent years, politicians have incre increasingly drawn the military back into partisan politics. So um, they have used the military to um, support government programs. They have used the military to support public security um, missions. So... Um, 
And the more the military was drawn into those internal roles, the more their power increased again. So um, combined with a widespread perception that they probably should be an arbiter um, that, uh, well, let's frame it differently. Let's just say um, wide par large parts of the military as well as society and political elites kind of agree on a dangerous sentiment that the military would be a final arbiter in politics. So uh, over the history of Brazil, for instance, the military often thought of itself to be a safeguard for the country. So if things gone wrong, uh, it was the military's uh, duty to step in and to prevent worse things from happening. And that's what motivated the Brazilian military, for instance, to overthrow governments. Um, I don't think we have a similar, similarly dangerous situation at the moment, but uh, I think um, that whole process of inviting the military into political roles, for instance, in Brazil, the federal intervention, or in Chile, using the military to um, yeah, clamp down on protesters in order to... Um, uh, in order to uh, prop up a weak government, that increases that old sentiment of the military as power broker and final decision maker in politics. You say, and I agree with you, that many people in Latin America see the armed forces as a sort of guarantor of democracy. And the armed forces see themselves as such and have historically done so. That doesn't happen in Western Europe or in North America. Why does it happen here? A lot of that goes back to the military's role in state building, so that states, as you just mentioned, Brazil's republic wouldn't exist without the military, or perhaps it would have existed later. Um, so there is um, their role in building states and having that self-perception of being uh, the most important institution of the country, that um, whose members are better trained than civilian politicians, whose members are supposedly less corrupt than civilian politicians, etc. Uh, so they think that they are an indispensable institution for the survival of their very nation or the existence of a state. And that's what motivated them to involve, to get involved in politics every now and then, because they thought Civilians aren't able to do it in a good way, so we have to do it ourselves in order to prevent those bad things from happening. And that remains a self-perception within the military. If you just take look back at a couple of years ago when General Morao made those public statements in terms of, well, if the politicians don't resolve it, then we have to step in and do it ourselves. You mentioned the federal intervention in Rio de Janeiro, and for those not familiar with it, in 2018, the army took over security roles in the city, patrolling several areas and acting as law enforcement. Many experts have criticized that kind of use for the armed forces, saying that soldiers are not trained to be law enforcement. What are your thoughts? I think the general assumption that the military isn't trained for law enforcement is right, but only to a certain extent. So if you consider Brazil, again, they have dedicated training centers for guaranteeing law and order operations, etc. But 
the outlook they are presenting at these training centers is not something that you would consider uh, democratic policing. But on the other hand, uh, Brazil's police forces, the military police, state forces, are also not really um, perpetuating a an image of democratic policing, of proximity policing, etc. So it's all pretty militarized and confrontational. Um, but uh, as I've argued in a couple of publications, I think danger of sending the military into internal missions is what they see a lack of effectiveness. So they would like to fulfill the mission at any cost and at any cost means that there would be the so-called collateral damage in the population. So um, it's not about the technical training of military to do police tasks such as patrolling. It's rather the mindset of combating an enemy. And they see that in order to fight an enemy, they have to engage with armed criminals, etc. Um, they're well aware that they risk the lives of innocents. But in the mindset of exterminating an enemy, that means that they uh, willingly accept that they would cause collateral damage. In 2018, we've seen a surge in the number of military officers running for office. How do you see that migration from the barracks to the ballots? Yes. So on the one, the military has always been political. So using the military for whatever is always political. But the problem is if it's partisan. So if the military becomes perceived as being a representative of certain partisan interests. And although the Brazilian military has officially tried to steer clear from the Bolsonaro administration, it's clear that in practice they aren't really. So um, for them, uh, the backlash or the possible backlash um, from the Bolsonaro government would also affect the institution, which is one, one risk for the military why it's not a good idea to join governments to such an extent as the Brazilian armed forces via their retired members have done. Although it might not be an official policy, um, there is this self-perpetuating mechanisms where you've got old generals asking their former subordinates to join them in government in order to, well, again, that motivation of being the most important institution of the country plays into that uh, to save a government which they perceive to be possibly inept. Others might be convi uh, convinced that the Bolsonaro project is worth supporting, but the negative outfall will fall back upon the military institution. And there's a further risk of um, producing rifts within the military. So, for instance, if you take a look at the reform of the Previdencia, um, Bolsonaro's voter base used to be rather lower-ranked military personnel or police personnel, and the current reform uh, rather is in the interest of the generals. So um, you risk kind of breaking apart that uh, cohesion within the military as lower ranking soldiers perceive that their bosses uh, via their contacts to government are managing to steer government policy in a way that negatively affects the lower ranks. And that might create a discontent which is ultimately dangerous for the military and then also for a country. Next, 
how bringing generals closer to power could be dangerous for Latin America's fragile democracies. Of every 100 spam messages sent in the world, five come from Brazil. And spam is not only annoying, it poses a real security threat for companies with their conspicuous links. If you want to protect your company's environment, team up with FastHelp. FastHelp is a Brasilia-based IT company that is focused on cybersecurity. Go to fasthelp.com.br for more information. fasthelp.com.br Harvard professor Steven Levitsky has become a sort of celebrity in the political science world after he published with fellow researcher Daniel Ziblatt the book How Democracies Die. In the era of Trumps, Orbans, Salvinis, or Bolsonaros, the book is a must-read about how elected leaders can gradually subvert the democratic process to increase their power. He recently wrote precisely about the dangers of being over-reliant on army generals for power in an op-ed for the New York Times called The Coup Temptation in Latin America, co-written by Columbia researcher Maria Victoria Murillo. Professor Levitsky, your op-ed focuses on Bolivia and how Evo Morales was deposed after losing support from the military. But we've cited in this episode many other examples in which the armed forces tipped the scales in favor or against a sitting president. Would it be fair to say that generals remain the ultimate power brokers in the region? Uh, I mean, Latin America in the last 40 years has made unprecedented progress in establishing civilian control over the military. And so there are now a number of countries, like Argentina, for example, Uruguay is another example, maybe still Brazil, um, where the military is no longer. Uh, the major power broker for decades and decades and decades. It was the ultimate power broker in Argentina. It no longer is. Um, in Chile, although I agree with you that it's very worrisome that, uh, that Pineda felt compelled to surround himself with the military, it's still not clear that the military is again a power broker. And in fact, Pineda had suffered, uh, paid a political price for that move um, and for talking about the, a war and, and for um, sort of unleashing uh, or permitting a, a fair amount of repression against protesters. I think that may backfire in a pro-democratic way in, in Chile. So it's not everywhere that the military is. And there are other countries like Guatemala, Paraguay, I would say Ecuador, maybe even Bolivia, where the military never stopped being the ultimate power broker. Um, and then there were countries in the middle where like like I would say Peru, where the, where there's a risk that the military is coming back. Um, I would say Honduras is another case where the military probably never stopped being a power worker. But in general, yes, there is. Uh, there seems to be in recent years at least some creeping back of the military's role as a, as an arbiter of power, and I think that's an incredibly dangerous tendency. And why does the military have such a central role in Latin American politics? There's a lot of evidence that a history of military intervention is a good predictor of future military intervention. In other words, it is a, uh, a self-reinforcing process that if you, if you have a period of, of, uh, of successive or multiple military interventions, like 
almost all of Latin America had in the first 50, 60 years after independence, that that puts a, puts a state, a country, a society down a path where politicians get grow accustomed to turning to the military um, when there's a crisis. And you see this over and over and over again. The vast majority of coups or military interventions occur because some political force um, appeals to the military. The military almost never intervenes if there's a united civilian front against it. And politicians in Bolivia and Ecuador and Peru and Guatemala and Honduras and many other countries who are accustomed to appealing to the military um, to, to either resolve crises or help it retain power or, or return to power. The other thing which is very unfortunate in recent years is that because Latin America in general, with a couple of exceptions, is a hard place to govern. These are uh, Latin American states are um, not really very effective outside of Uruguay and Chile. Uh, there is at least a medium level of corruption and a very high level of social inequality. And so democratic governments governing in a context of ex pretty extreme inequality and pretty ineffective states have a hard time governing, especially when you're not in a the kind of commodity boom that we had between 2002 and 2014. During normal times, economies in Latin America are volatile, they're not great, and governments are unpopular. And so after 30, 35, 40 years of democracy, governing in societies that are difficult to govern, um, public's confidence in democratic politicians and politicians and parties and democratic governance, government, public confidence has fallen. Most Latin Americans do not like their parties. They don't like their politicians. They don't like their elected government. And very unfortunately, one institution in many countries, and Brazil is a good example, that has retained a certain amount of public confidence and public legitimacy is the military. So if you compare in Brazil public support for the military uh, or public confidence in the military, the public confidence in any political party, the military is a clear winner. And that only reinforces the temptation of politicians to turn to the military as an ally. And why do the armed forces have so much more prestige than democratic institutions like Congress or political powers? I mean, in many countries, Brazil included, the military has a history of running dictatorships and committing human rights violations. That's a great question. I don't have a really satisfying answer. Um, now, in some countries, Argentina is the leading case of this, but also Chile, I think, um, where human and, and Uruguay, where human rights violations were, were really widespread and really and, and really pronounced, where the, where, particularly where the middle class was affected. Um, you, you see a, a, a rejection of the, of the military that persists today. But, um, you know, with generational change, societies forget. Most Latin Americans don't want the military back in power. But the reason why militaries have more prestige today than civilian governments is militaries have not been in power. Militaries have been on the sidelines, so they're not seen as responsible. The politicians are seen as responsible for corruption, for crises, for crime, for violence. The military has been in the barracks, so it seems less responsible. In Brazil, the president's son and his economy minister have talked about the possibility of enacting the same oppressive instruments used by the dictatorship. 
What is the effect of this kind of stance on the democratic game? It's terrible. I traveled to Brazil uh, in July of 2018 and was uh, begging economic elites in Sao Paulo not to not to support Bolsonaro. It's never, as we've learned here in the United States, it is never a good idea to elect an openly authoritarian figure as your president. It is a terrible, terrible risk. Jair Bolsonaro has never hidden his uh, his uh, uh, embrace of, of dictatorship, of the military, his uh, willingness to, um, to to subvert democratic institutions and to, to, to violate human rights. Um, unfortunately, Brazil suffered a perfect storm in 2000, between 2014 and 2018 of a terrible economic crisis at the same time as the world's worst, at least democratic world's worst corruption scandal at the same time as this terrible problem of, of violence and criminality um, that helped give rise to Bolsonaro and uh, widespread public um, anger at the political elite, especially at the PT, led to the election of a, of a, of a dangerously authoritarian figure. Luckily, he's pretty inept and he's not terribly popular. I think that helps to protect Brazil's democracy. In your work, you mentioned that the biggest risk for democracy is not having tanks on the streets, but rather having elected leaders destroying democracy from within. But would this proximity of generals with power make Latin America an exception? Is there still a risk of a classic coup like the ones we saw in the 60s or the 70s? Look, I, I still think military coups are hard to achieve in Latin America. That may change. And I, uh, the reason that we wrote the piece in the New York Times uh, a week ago is because we're worried of a, of a possible return to a, a world in which military coups are, are acceptable. Uh, but for now, military rule is, is still a very, very difficult thing to achieve in Latin America. Latin Americans, despite all of their discontent with Uh, with democracy and democratic politicians still want to elect their government. And so I don't think we've reached a point where the military is coming back to power. Uh, I still think that the, even in Latin America uh, and even in countries like Bolivia, the greatest risk is elected governments abusing power. Um, and we don't know what's going to happen in Bolivia yet, but um, the, the modal way that the, The dominant way in which democracy is weakened and dies is much closer to the to what the Mas government in Bolivia was doing, or what the Chavista government in Venezuela, or the Hernandez government in Honduras, or the Ortega government in Nicaragua. That is the primary way, still today, in which democracy dies. This podcast was written and prepared by me, Gustavo Ribeiro. Ewan Marshall edited the final script. If you like Explaining Brazil and the Brazilian Report, don't forget to give us five stars on whatever platform you use for podcasts. That will help more people connect with this show, and it only takes a second. But the absolute best way to support this show is by subscribing to the Brazilian Report. Subscription plans start at only $3.90. And that's really not a lot of money to support independent journalism, especially in these times of fake news. Every day we have new content about Brazilian politics, finance, society, Latin American affairs, environmental issues, you name it. Go to brazilian.report/slash subscribe. 
that's all for now. See you next week.